Good morning. Okay, Psalms 27, 1 through 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, to my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face, my heart says to you. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the very word of God. Again, good morning. Um, What a joy and a privilege it is that we might be counted among the children of God. The mystery of old revealed to us in Christ that we, I'm assuming most of us, if not all of us, Gentiles, have been made heirs, members of the same body, that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Today we get to join the ancient rhythm of adoration and worship to God. What a privilege that is for us. And so upon saying that, I want to confess I don't have a new thing for you this morning. It's an ancient thing. It's a message. It's a reminder It's actually a song that has been echoing for generations. These are truths that peoples of the past generations have leaned into, they've wrestled with, and they have proclaimed. This morning, I want to point you to the high king of heaven. I want to point you to the one who holds all things together, the one who is, as the psalmist said, our light, our salvation, our stronghold, the one in whom has been our help. And we have the opportunity this morning to see the glorious truths out of Psalm 27. I want this, our hearts to leave here, able to seek and to savor Jesus a little bit more. I hope that as we look at Psalm 27, uh, that we will be able to see some of these things more clearly. I confess that I didn't pick Psalm 27 because I'm an expert in Hebrew poetry and all of the literary devices and intricacies. In fact, there's a lot that I still have to study and to learn of this particular psalm. But I was intrigued. I was intrigued by the desire of the psalmist in verse 4. The one thing he desires is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want that. 
I want to be that type of man. I want to be that type of, uh, have that type of desire that leads me to say those types of things. And so what I found in Psalm 27, I just want to share with you. I want it to bubble out of me, and hopefully there is an expectation of you finding hope, finding comfort, motivation, encouragement from the Word of God. And so before I dig in to some of it, I would like to just pause and pray uh, yet again and invite God to have his way with us. So God, I thank you that your word is true and that it changes us. I pray that we would be guarded from being unimpressed by your word, that every time we gather, every time we open it, there's an opportunity for us to meet with the God of the universe, the one who is committed to being near us, to being with us, to drawing us to himself. And so I pray that you would cultivate the soils of our heart, that our hearts would be the good soil, the fourth type of soil as displayed in the gospel of the sower, in the parable of the sower. Pray that the seeds that are planted there this morning would produce eternal fruit, your kingdom type of fruit, and that we would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord more as a result of what we learn and what you stir in us. Help us to see things even uh, that we've never seen before in a passage that perhaps is familiar. Would you teach us your ways, O God? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So um, I want to present to you today that God is committed to being with his people and that his commitment to being with his people changes everything. As I studied Psalm 27, I saw this popping out all throughout every stanza, every, uh, every verse it seems to be pointing to this element of God's nearness, his commitment. And I find that as I was preparing, I have to fight some of the deistic underpinnings of my heart and even within our culture that if there is a God, then he's far away, he's disinterested, he's not, he's not really intimate and, and, and interested in what is going on in my life. And of course, we may not say that as followers of Jesus, but we can tend to gravitate towards that, right, in seasons of weariness, of, of dryness, of suffering, of trial. And I want to hopefully point out today that Psalm 27 is a psalm that shows us that God is committed to being near, committed to being with his people. This isn't a, the first time in the narrative of scripture that it gets pointed out that God is near. In fact, it's in the opening pages of scripture and a theme throughout. We could spend a 42-week series on the nearness of God um, throughout scripture. Uh, pointing to the fact of his commitment. And I hope that Psalm 27 this morning is just one of those many pieces of the puzzle for us to clearly see how God is at work in uh, his people drawing near to us. And so I do have a background as a teacher. Um, Can't claim that I'm a great teacher, but I have some of that training. And so some of the things that I'll do today will be a little bit more teachery than preachery. Um, and so one of those things I'd like to do before jumping into the specifics of Psalm 27 is to look at some background of just the Psalms in general, some notes on authorship and historical context that will hopefully help us to zone in a little bit more on Psalm 27. Uh, so simply put, Psalms are songs, they're prayers, they're aids in our worship to God. And there are different types of Psalms. Uh, there are any two lists that I looked at and studied and commentaries they had different types. Um, there's not a, an exhaustive list from every person, but there are thanksgiving psalms, there are confidence psalms, there are psalms of lament, there are psalms 
um, of exaltation. There are all kinds of different psalms, and we'll look at, uh, I'll mention here in a moment, the type of psalm or psalms that is represented in this one this morning. Uh, psalms, the book of psalms, falls under the genre of Hebrew poetry, which of course has some different literary structures that ought to cause us to pause in the way that we read, because uh, it's not just like a story. There's different things that we ought to notice uh, when we look at a psalm. I'm not going to point out all of those because I don't know them all yet, uh, and it's not an English composition class, and we're not here to learn about all of the literary devices, but there are a couple that I'd like to point out. First, the psalms often invite us to think in pictures. It, as Westerners, we typically think often in sequential order and logic and reason, but I see that the psalms point at point us towards pictures, point us towards images that, that describes the character of God, the nature of God, and the things going on in the world around us. Secondly, there is a particular literary device that I plan to look at and give a visual of towards the end of the message today, and that literary device I've uh, recently been exposed to, and it shows up not just in poetry, but it shows up uh, throughout narrative and other genres of scripture, and that particular literary device is called a chiasm. And simply put, a chiasm presents a series of ideas, and then it repeats them in opposite order. It, re re uh, it presents a, a series of ideas and then repeats them in opposite order. Uh, I'll show an image of that from Psalm 27, um, that will hopefully give a little bit of an aha moment toward the end. So I mentioned a chiasm in literary device because I think it's relevant to our study this morning. And thirdly, uh, maybe the thing that is the most obvious when we read and go and gravitate towards the Psalms is that they invite us to explore our emotions. Our emotions. For some of us, that's comforting, and some, for some of us, that's terrifying, right? The Psalms... The Psalms appeal to our whole person. They demand a total response. They inform not just our emotions, but also our intellect. They arise our emotions, they direct our wills, and they stimulate our imaginations. These songs or Psalms cover a wide range of experiences, and they give God's people words to express these experiences and emotions as we bring them before God. At the same time, these Psalms don't just simply give us a way to express emotions, they also when sung in faith, when proclaimed in faith, they actually start and begin to shape the emotions and the perspective of the godly. And so throughout history, throughout Christian history, throughout ancient history, the Psalms have been things in which the people of God have found great comfort in. I particularly am uh, encouraged by the fact that God is not intimidated by our emotions. And we see that we could flip to a number of different Psalms like, oh, you said that to God? <laughs> so there's great comfort in what we find in the Psalms. It's not as natural for us to trust God in hardship, and yet the Psalms provide a way of doing just that. They enable us, the singers, the people of God, to trust better as a result of singing and engaging with them. One note on authorship um, is that David is attributed to writing nearly half of the Psalms. Over 70 Psalms are, are, are pointed towards him. There, it is noteworthy to say that there is some uh, debate with un, among scholars of just how many and what specific ones he pinned. Uh, the Hebrew words used to that in our English translations, when you see in the title of David, could mean of David, to David, for David. And so I'm not here to debate all of those such things this morning, but it's regardless, it's safe to say that David influenced much of 
the Psalter up to half, uh, nearly half of the Psalter that we find today. I mention that because Psalm 27 is a Psalm of David. A couple things on the historical context that leads us into Psalm 27. Um, in reading any psalm, it's easy for us as readers to say, I wonder what's going on in this psalmist's life. What's going on for this psalmist to write these things, to express these things? And while sometimes the title and the content of the psalm can point us to a specific moment in history or in the narrative scripture like Psalm 3 or Psalm 51, uh, Psalm 27 does not give us that in title or in content a specific event in David's life. Uh, while we could take time to scan the life of David and try to pinpoint, okay, it could be in this moment, it could be in that moment, I don't think that's really necessary this, this morning to do that. I think that the truths of this psalm are not dependent upon us knowing the specific experience of the psalmist as he wrote these words. So with that said, I do think that there is a relevant thing for historical context's sake, is that some commentators, as I was studying, commented that Psalm 27 was likely a psalm that was used in preparation for battle. And if that's true, the imagery and the elements of this psalm uh, begin to take some of the shape to that, and the characteristics that we'll see um, will, will kind of take shape around that type of usage, and I'll notate that as we go. Psalm 27, as I mentioned before, has a couple of different uh, types of psalms represented, which is a little bit unique. The first six verses um, are considered to be a psalm of confidence, a psalm of confidence, and then it transitions in verse 7 into a, song, a psalm or a song of lament. And what holds these two types together is the theme of longing for the Lord's presence. The psalmist here focuses on the Lord and his circumstances are secondary. That's evidence that if you just, if you just read through and you just donate, notate the repeated words and themes uh, or phrases, you'll see that the psalmist here in 27 uses some sort of synonym for enemy or adversary 11 times throughout Psalm 27. And in contrast, the psalmist uses a reference for God, mostly in the holy name of God, Yahweh, or big caps, uh, Lord, in your English Bible. Um, he uses that or some sort of reference to God two times more. So 20 plus, depending on the particular translation, if you count the pronouns of him and his uh, and he, uh, you, can, you can more than double the times that he uh, references any adversary or oppositional force. Okay, so this points to the fact that the psalmist is apparently uh, going through some difficult or facing some opposition, and yet his focus isn't on his circumstances, but on the Lord, the one who is his light and salvation. Psalms of confidence enable worshipers to deepen their trust in God through all manner of difficult circumstances. In Psalms of confidence, the psalmist often asserts his trust in God, even though his enemies or some other threat are present. You can see Psalm 11, Psalm 23 as examples. Under such conditions of distress, the psalmist is able to be at peace because he knows that God is with him, again, as seen in Psalm 11 and 23 as examples. So psalms of confidence contain striking metaphors which show an intimate knowledge upon the psalmist's idea, the intimate knowledge of God's presence. Laments, on the other hand, they function as a way of laying difficult situations before God, and they provide us a context to ask for help. Many laments don't immediately express confidence or hopefulness. 
in God or in the circumstances surrounding them. Laments, in fact, take up up to a third of the book of Psalms. And so it's not hard to flip through and find some of the elements of uh, a, a lament. So as I mentioned in beginning that I, I think that Psalm 27 is pointing us to God's commitment to being with us and that that changes everything, whether we're in a position of confidence or we're in a position of lament. We can be assured that our anchor, our hope, that all of that is anchored in the commitment that God is going to be near and with his people. I think it's pretty cool that this psalm contains both elements of confidence and lament uh, because I think it shows us a comprehensive picture of God's commitment to be with his people in these wide ranges of experiences and emotions. Again, God's not intimidated by what we face or what we feel. And so as we'll see here at the end, um, I see the way that the structure of the psalm is laid out, the, the signpost of, of God being near his people and an, an invitation for us to draw near is there. Look at me to verse one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I see that verse one is acting as kind of a canopy for what follows in this chapter and immediately preceding uh, these verses. So look at verse one again. David provides us with three images for God, for the Lord or Yahweh that provide truth about who God is. Remember, think in pictures here. And I'm going to pause for a moment as I say each one of these images. I just want you, you might close your eyes. I won't throw anything at you, even though that would be awesome. Like baseball player, I just like to throw things, but I won't do that to you this morning. Maybe close your eyes or, or visualize, look out, out in space of uh, what, you, what immediately comes to mind when you hear these particular images. Remember, think in pictures. Light. Light. Salvation. Stronghold. They're likely different images that pop throughout our mind if we took a survey of what these pictures were that you thought of. Probably different based on your story, based on what you understand these words to mean or have meant. So what does it mean that God is our light, our salvation, and our stronghold? He's obviously not embodied in any of these things alone, but they're meant to point us towards his character. Light throughout scripture describes God, God and his guiding presence, his purity, his holiness. Psalm 119, 105 describes God's word as being a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Micah 7 verse 8 echoes similar imagery of Psalm 27, 1. When it says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. First John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John picks up this imagery in chapter one of his gospel to describe Jesus. Later in the gospel of John, we see Jesus use this image of himself. He is the light of the world. One commentary stated that Jesus, amen. One commentary stated that Jesus is as the light brings to this dark world true knowledge, moral purity, and the light that shows the very presence of God. So the light is representing the presence of God, the nearness of God. So this concept of light is even found in those who are united to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 says that we are to walk in the light. Uh, we are the light in the Lord, and he commissions us to walk as children of the light. And so this concept, this imagery of light is uh, throughout the narrative of scripture. Salvation. 
salvation, God here is referred to as salvation or the God of salvation uh, as seen many times throughout scripture. A lot of the Psalms, you can see that the psalmist is describing God of salvation, God of my salvation. Salvation in this context in Psalm 27 is likely referring to a physical deliverance more than a spiritual deliverance. Um, That makes sense if in fact this psalm was used in preparation for battle that the expectation of the Israelite army was for God to show up, for him to protect them, for him to deliver them from opposing forces. Um, throughout the Psalter, while we see um, the, the while waiting for rescue, the psalmist often portrayed faith that the Lord was with them, keeping guard over them, and he would not abandon them. They would cry out, and the Lord, uh, knowing that the Lord was with them and that they were completely dependent upon him, and so even though I think Psalm 27 is likely referring to more of a physical deliverance here, I think we would be uh, amiss, or I don't think it would be wrong to allow ourselves to uh, be led into the truths, the plethora of truths of uh, Jesus as uh, our salvation, as revealed in the New Testament, who is in fact God, right? There's not a, not a hard connection uh, as we look forward to the story that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. And so um, we're not going to go into all of those New Testament examples this morning. Thirdly, stronghold. The third, third image here in verse 1 describes these high walls or rocky fortress. It em- emphasizes to us as the reader the stable protection that God provides for those who call upon him. Think here the walls of Jericho and the confidence and security that the residents had in the surrounding walls. Now, we know that those walls crumbled, but nonetheless, throughout history, walls were a signpost of comfort, of security, of being protected. And so the imagery here of being protected and hidden hidden shows up again uh, in verse 5 of Psalm uh, 27 that we'll look at here in a moment. So before looking, moving on to looking at the next verses, I do want to take a look at um, what follows these particular images. Uh, Each line here in verse 1 follows, it's actually a question, whom shall I fear, of whom shall I be afraid? What is translated fear and afraid here in in our version is actually two different words in the Hebrew language that oftentimes are very similar and even used interchangeably. The word fear uh, in Hebrew often points to the sense of awe or honor or respect. Um, And it's in this connection, the Lord is my light, my salvation, of whom shall I fear? You can see that these, uh, this physical light, this physical salvation, these are realities to solicit some type of loyalty or attention, this, this fear. Being afraid or afraid in the second part, uh, the second question, seems to portray more of a response toward a harmful circumstance of actually like that fight or flight, that fear of running away in the face of circumstances. And so if God is a fortress and a tower, it makes sense that the author, author would not be afraid. And so you see that he's my light, he's my salvation, I can give him honor, I can give him awe, I can give him my worship. Um, if there's someone bigger and better, then I better give my allegiance to that person. But the psalmist is saying God is that light and that salvation. If God is not will, able and willing to protect me, then I better look for protection elsewhere. I'd be afraid anywhere other than where I'm most secure. And he's portraying for us here that he feels that the security is in what God has provided him. 
each of these images and the responses provides us with the evidence of God's commitment to being near his people and how that changes everything. The psalmist doesn't have to give all in worship elsewhere because it is God who is his guide, his perfecter and deliverer. The psalmist doesn't have to be paralyzed in fear because God is his stronghold, a safe place for him to draw upon. And we'll see this again repeated in verse 5, when God, it is God who will hide, conceal, and lift. And so the psalmist here is able to have confidence because of who God is. He starts this psalm with declaring that God is light, salvation, and a stronghold. Verses 2 and 3 uh, move on into uh, what I see pointing us to the result of who God is. What I mean by this is that because God is David's light, salvation, and stronghold, his enemies will stumble and fall. His heart doesn't have to fear, and his heart can be confident, as we see in verses 2 and 3. But there's some tension here, right? For us as readers, there's tension. Are these words absolute truths? Are they things that we can name and claim in any difficult circumstance? What happens if enemies don't end up stumbling and falling? And there's a lot that could be said upon that. It is first uh, important to realize that David, although writing these particular words or influencing these particular words, is uh, of confidence. He's not always in that type of posture. We can look at Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the difference in David's posture here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Right? So this isn't words of confidence, and it's still considered a psalm of David. In fact, David also had some fears that he needed to be delivered from. Psalm 34, verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. And so it's not that David in this psalm is saying that there's not uh, going to be opposition and that not the opposite of confidence that comes. Secondly, you can see some of the elements of confidence and expectation if, in fact, the Israelite army is using this as a rallying point, as a chant, as a cry out to the Lord, uh, like a pump-up speech before the state championship game type of thing. You can see that they would probably want to portray the God of their salvation, the one who defends them more than, well, we don't really know, we hope, right? So you can see that there is uh, some expectation there with the usage of the psalm toward the preparation for battle. And thirdly, it's worth saying that our timetable and our experiences are often and sometimes, uh, sometimes and often very nearsighted. What I mean is that just because there are dif difficult circumstances that seem to be winning or in the lead, the gospel proclaims that ultimate victory is in Jesus and to those who are united to him. If you skip ahead in Psalm 27, verse 14, you'll see that there's an imperative to wait upon the Lord. Sometimes our waiting causes us to sit in the confusing in-between of our circumstances and those realities and the deliverance of God. Again, verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 27, I see that the psalmist is pointing us to God's commitment to being near his people and that it actually matters. There are results that happen both externally in expectation and internally in the psalmist's heart. The enemies stumble and fall external and the psalmist's heart is actually being changed, that his heart hasn't fear, his heart is confident. That word heart is actually a word that uh, means the inner self, the inclination, the disposition, determination, the will, intention, reason, 
So all of the innermost being of the psalmist is being changed here as well. Take a look with me at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that which I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David here is describing a desire to dwell in the house of the Lord. And since at this point in history, um, with the tabernacle and temple uh, that was in place, this is where God's people came to worship, we can derive that David is communicating a desire to be with God or to be near God in what he's saying here in the house of the Lord and inquire in his temple. He wants to look upon the beauty or the delightfulness, the kindness, the favor of the Lord, and to inquire or to meditate, to consider, to examine in God's temple. David here expects to experience and learn more about God. One commentary said that searching for and enjoying the Lord's presence provides this psalmist the foundation for confidence and security. And so it's not just that God is our light and our salvation and our stronghold, but it's actually the confidence is further extended into the psalmist being able to be in the presence of God, to be able to be near to God. And God's commitment, again, to being near his people is on display in that verse. Commenting on Psalm 27, verse 4, Spurgeon says this about this desire that he sees in David to be in the house of the Lord. This des- desires are, are seed which must be sown in the soil of good activity, or they will yield no harvest. We shall find our desires to be like clouds without rain unless followed by the practical endeavors. So we see here that David is portraying desire, but he's also talking about some of the steps in which he's going to walk out some of that desire of being in the presence of God, in in the house of God, and in the temple. And we'll see this a bit more when we get to verse 8 and verse 13. Moving on now to verses 5 and 6, we see more imagery in these verses of God's presence, his nearness, and actions on the behalf of his people in the day of trouble. Note on the day of trouble, this is likely meaning um, some sort of military campaign, um, like like into when enemies encamp around or encamped against in verse 3, that is likely referring to some sort of siege where it would produce some sort of famine. And so you see this military verbiage um, coming forth, this day of trouble, um, that God shows up, his nearness. We see the actions correlated with God's presence is, uh, is to be not far off, not disinterested, but to actually think of a fatherly or a motherly, a parental instinct to protect their children. Psalm 31 verse 20 gives highlight to this. Uh, in a beautiful way, it says, in the cover of your presence, you hide me from the plots of men. The psalmist in Psalm 31 is, is again talking about in your presence, you hide me, you cover me. Again, this beckoning into the presence of God. So verse 6 communicates that that expectation of God's nearness would produce being uh, lifted up, that there would be triumph over the enemy. Um, to be lifted high upon a rock is portraying that there's confidence that God is who he says he is and will show up in the midst of this. I see some similar repetition going on in verses 1 and 3 and then in 5 and 6. Verse 1 describes who God is. As a result of who God is, things happen. The psalmist's enemies stumble and fall in verses 2 and 3. And then it's followed by a worshipful response in verse 4. Verse 5 tells us of what the Lord has done. Verse 1, who the Lord is. Verse 5, what the Lord has done. As a result of what the Lord has done, the psalmist has victory 
and then it's followed by a response of worship, both found in verse 6, that the, the psalmist says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I like how verse 6 says that there will be shouts of joy. It reminds me of another psalm, Psalm 16, verse 11, that says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. You realize this theme that keeps coming out in the, throughout the book of Psalms of the nearness of God, the, the presence of God, and what's producing this hiding, this protection, this joy that is connected with his nearness. God, the God draws near to us to, to hide us, to lift us up, to conceal us. And we have an opportunity to draw near to him, as indicated in the response of the psalmist here, to offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. So verses 1 through 6, again, are those verses of, of confidence. Verse 7 marks the transition point for the psalmist to move from confidence into a song of lament and petition. You'll see that in saying, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. That, fru- that, that phrase, answer me, is, is an off, uh, a common expression within songs of lament, of this plea, of this desire to be heard from God and for God to show up. You'll also notice that there's a shift in verses 7 onward uh, from talking about God. In verses 1 through 6, you see the psalmist referencing God to direct communication with God in verses 7, and mostly in the verses following after 7. You'll notice this direct communication to God. It is noteworthy to mention that we would we would be amiss if we thought that Psalm 27 was simply just an individual psalm um, from one person directly to God. I've mentioned the idea of it being a potentially a, a military preparation psalm, um, which is not just one person fighting an army. Um, but it's also important to note here that the psalms weren't just used for individual uh, alone, and mo- most often they were used for corporate settings. Um, secondly, the, the Hebrew verb in this, um, in this verse, of, uh, verse 8, that says, seek my face, there's a Hebrew uh, imperative here, and that, that verb is actually a plural form of you. So like, y'all, y'all, seek my face, right? And so it's important here that we're not just reading it as an individual sense, but it's actually a, a corporate, um, seek my face, come. So... Psalm 8, or sorry, verse 8 of Psalm 27 is the centerpiece. Nestled into the middle of this psalm is a nugget of God's heart, a signpost to his commitment to be near his people. He says again, seek my face. God is willing to be known. The more we know him, the more we will admire him. I don't think that he would make this request if he planned on being distant, if he wasn't committed to relationship and intimacy. For he knows that the more that we know him, the more that we seek him, the more we will want to admire him. So does not the psalmist ooze this type of desire to adore, to admire the God of his salvation? Don't you see that in verse 1 and verse 4, here in verse 8, and then following, you'll see it again in verse 9. Look at how the psalmist responds, your face, Lord, I will seek. In verses 7 and through 9, face is a key word in these verses, appearing three times. To seek God's face is to petition the Lord, most often in the context of worship. It involves complete devotion to God um, and, uh, in the same sense, turning toward him. 
there are a lot of references throughout Scripture to seeking God and to seeing his face. Um, and we're not going to take the time to explore all of those particular verses and contexts this morning. Um, it would take a while. But remember that Hebrew poetry is inviting us to think in pictures. It's not asking us, well, can someone live if they see the face of God? And all of these other questions that arise. Remember, we're thinking in pictures here. Uh, that it, the images are meant to direct us to truth in a different way than what typically reason or logic might do for us. Partic two particular verses I do want to point out from Seeking God's Face um, are, one, Psalm 17, verse 15 says, When I wake, I will see you face to face. I can't help but uh, think that this is connected, or at least in some point bringing us back to the description of Moses in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, describing Moses' relationship with God. Um, Moses, after he died, was given this epitaph, this description. It's a pretty good one. Even though he didn't enter the promised land, There's, uh, we shouldn't throw stones at him. I, I hope that upon my last breath, people would say this of me. It says, since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. I don't want you to call me a prophet. I want you to say that Derek Glenn knew God face to face. This one commentator describing, describing this expression, this Hebrew expression of face to face, um, describes it to mean that it's like a kiss between two lovers. It's not just two people in relationship looking at each other. It's not just them coming forward to forehead, but it's embracing in a marital type of kiss, this intimacy that is derived from this idea of face to face with God. And so this invitation of seek my face and the psalmist saying, your face, Lord, I will seek. It's this cry of intimacy. It's this cry of longing to be with and near. God wouldn't make that invitation if he wasn't planning on being true to who he says he is. So it seems clear that to seek God's face is a relational and intimate pursuit that begs for the nearness of God to be a reality. Looking now into verse 9, you can almost feel the psalmist's plea intensify with emotion. Right? Answer me when I call when I cry aloud, be gracious and answer me, he says in verse 7. In verse 9, he starts saying things like, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Again, another reference back to verse 1. Yes, it seems that the psalmist is uh, pleading for in earnest for this God of his salvation, for the, his face to be shining upon him, for maybe victory in battle. But I think in connection to the overall psalm, I think there's more. I think it's about not losing intimate relationship with God. He doesn't want to face rejection or abandonment from God. This would be devastating and seemingly unbearable for the psalmist. The plea from verse 9 leads us to a starting example in the following verse, in verse 10, expressing eager desire to be found in God's presence. The psalmist states that his father and his mother have abandoned him or have done to him what he's asking the Lord not to do, which would be to reject, to abandon, and to cast off. And I thought that that was a bit odd. Like, why is he talking about mom and dad here? Um, again, there's what's a specific instance. And I was like, okay, thinking in pictures, what is the psalmist trying to get us to think here? And what I, what I came to the conclusion that the psalmist seems to be using this image, this contrast or this idea of, a motherly or fatherly instinct that we assume and would be expected of parental love to support and to care, and then the shock to say that a parent has rejected their child, 
this imagery to point us and draw us to the more extravagant loving kindness of God and his commitment to his covenant, which after all is a commitment and a covenant to being with his people. You will be my God type of lingo from the narrative before. The result of verse number 10 is that God will take the psalmist in, again, suggesting God's commitment to nearness. So he's, he's confessing, don't cast me out. And at the end of verse 10, but the Lord will take me in. Again, God is committed to being with his people, and that changes everything. Verse 13, um, sorry, verse 11 and 12 uh, move on to give us yet another contrast. This contrast is between the righteous, or the psalmist, and his enemies. Here there is a clear distinction between the path of the Lord and the enemy's path, uh, as described in verse 12. You can see here, uh, give me not... Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. When I, when I read that for the first time in my observations, I couldn't help but think of my sweet daughter, uh, my eldest, Tirza, and breathing out violence. I thought about a dragon breathing out fire, right? She would appreciate that reference to dragons in my sermon today. Um, and so you can see this clear contrast in the path of the righteous versus the unrighteous, uh, which... The unrighteous motives are with actions of false witness and of violence. The psalmist is requesting here to be taught, to be guided by God on a level path or the righteous path. path. Again, again, the psalmist is drawing to uh, the difference in heart motivations. Um, the psalmist is drawing upon nearness to God to make a difference in his experience and to make a difference in those heart motivations. The righteous path, as described elsewhere in Scripture, is, uh, is soliciting moral values. It's soliciting these um, motivations that would be pleasing to God. So we learn these things in connection to who God is and who he says he is. Verse 13, and wrapping up here in our observations, verse 13 uh, returns to this exclamation, uh, that we find in verses 1 through 3 and who God is. This idea of looking upon the Lord, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This look upon is similar to the gaze upon the beauty of the Lord found in verse 4, and it carries that same nuance of admiration and affection. The goodness of the Lord is probably his gracious character as described in Exodus 33 and 34 when Moses is asking to see the glory of the Lord, and the goodness of the Lord passes in front of Moses. It's a great story, and uh, followed into Exodus 34, where there's this graciousness. God reveals his graciousness um, to Moses, and it becomes really this, this foundational piece of confidence to proclaim back to the Lord throughout history um, after that. And so the expectation is that God would allow his people to access him, to know him, and that he would allow himself to be known and worshipped in the here and now, not in the afterlife. We've heard Pastor Ben speak many, many times about this idea of it's not, uh, the hope is not in an afterlife, in a disembodied existence, it's in the here and now. The psalmist is saying, I, ta I, I believe, I have confidence that I will see the goodness, I will see the glory, I will see the presence of the Lord right here and now, and it will matter for me. Furthermore, this concept of goodness might remind you of Psalm 23 when it says, Surely the goodness of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow or pursue in Psalm 23 is commonly used to 
portray towards attackers. So this, uh, this goodness of the Lord that will pursue is usually connected to attackers. But here, the Lord's goodness and faithful love are personified as the ones who chase the psalmist throughout his life. And so if we mirror the whole counsel of God in some of these psalms of the goodness of the Lord, I, I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life. So the psalmist here has expectation to be near to God. The psalm ends in verse 14 with a command to wait upon the Lord, and that's pretty hard, right? Whether that's in line uh, at store or in traffic, I can't help but think of my own reaction and the reaction of my kiddos when I say wait, met with sighs and sounds and the whole shebang of waiting. It's It's unnatural to our desires. To wait upon the Lord is uncomfortable. Waiting upon the Lord confronts our desire to be in control. In long seasons of waiting, we often wrestle with the sovereignty of God and is his control good? Will I actually see the goodness of the Lord in the here and now? So Psalm 27 starts by declaring God to be the light, salvation, and stronghold. And the psalm ends with the imperative to align with confident expectation that God is who he says he is. That God is committed to being near his people. So in uh, a teacherly thing, uh, quickly, I w- now that we've walked through the psalm, I'd like to just tie the bow in our observations by taking a look on the screen here. You're probably not going to be able to read all of the words, but I just want to point out to this chiastic outline, the chiasm here, and you can see it being a little bit like an hourglass, that it starts in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and the centerpiece is verse 8, this, you seek my face, and you say, seek my face, and your face, Lord, I'll seek, and then you start seeing this mirroring uh, effect, okay? This is this literary device to take us into What's the main point? What is the psalmist trying to get us to? Verses 1 and 14 are all about the Lord. His, and then 2 and 3 and 12 and 13 are about deliverance. 4 and 11 are about this request, this petition. And then the Lord in 5 and 7 and 9 and 10, uh, the action of the Lord lifting him up, the, the, the results that come out of who God is. And so I show that hopefully as just a visual representation that the psalmist here is trying to get us to, uh, to see, to remember, to believe that God is committed to being with his people, to look upon, his, to invite us in, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. So in conclusion, one commentator summarizes Psalm 27 in this way. In singing Psalm 27, God's people have a way of not simply expressing confidence in him, but cultivating that confidence for the widest range of challenging life situations. One who can trust God in those circumstances can trust him in other circumstances as well. There's a lot that we could say here about application. What does this mean? How do we apply this to our lives? And I had some thoughts uh, for that, but I'll save that for another time, maybe in discussion. Um, But I want to leave with that idea for us to be reminded this morning that God is committed to be with you. Whether that's in a season of confidence, directed to believing who God says he is and experiencing that, or in a season of lament, God's commitment and our confidence and in our lament, nearness changes everything. Let's pray together. God, I pray for those 
in seasons of confidence. And that can easily proclaim the truths of verses 1 through 6. I pray that you would continue to sustain them, that you would reveal yourself more and more to them. For those who are in seasons of lament and in need of solace, I pray that the, the reality of verses 7 through 14, that there is both confidence and lament uh, here, that we can see that you are near and that you invite us into both seasons. I pray for those that uh, perhaps maybe in hearing these truths, maybe don't have that desire to be like the psalmist in verses 4 and 8 and 13, to look upon, to gaze upon, to believe that they will see the glory and goodness of God in the land of the living. I pray that you would stir up in these brothers and sisters a desire to reorient, to try, to, to again present and make margins to be in your presence, to draw near in the awkwardness that it is in our efforts. I pray that you would strengthen, that you give endurance for, uh, for us to have endurance, to continue to pursue your heart through weary seasons. For those of us who need to wait upon the Lord and surrender our desires for control in a particular situation, would you draw near? Would you find us and would you comfort us? I ask for you to sustain us in our waiting, give us endurance to seek your face. May we have more and more intimacy with you. Pray that you would touch our heart, you would touch our inner self, our inclinations, our dispositions, the determinations and courage and the wills, our intentions. Would you touch that? And would you allow us to be aligned to the intimate pursuits of David as it's found in Psalm 27? We thank you that you are faithful, and this is not a work of our own doing. This is a work that we are calling upon, God of our salvation, the light, the stronghold, the one who has been our help. We cry out to you. We seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray.